and welcome to East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, still sitting in lockdown here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us all the way from his network nexus in Sweden is Mr. Kenny B. Never mind me. You are back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, fanfare, I guess, is... Uh, <laughs> You're back. We're back. That's uh, awesome. And if, if you're listening to this, it's um, you know we've been uh, compiling a couple episodes that uh, at the time of this recording haven't been released yet because it's kind of we're working towards a slow rollout, and I'm uh, having to fix quite a few backend technical issues, which is taking me longer than I anticipated. But uh, you know, uh, hopefully this will get the momentum going, and we'll. Yeah, keep some content coming out from the rest of the year in uh, 2020 uh, while we have this time on lockdown. And uh, as I mentioned in the last episode with Kevin, we've been away for just over a year. Um, that was yeah. completely on my wandering, end. Wandering Earth was the last episode I noticed. So yes, uh, still haven't watched that, by the way. <laughs> the, uh, the the it was our f- one episode post the 2019. Uh, Lunar New Year uh, films that we talked about. And mm. uh, I just had to take some time uh, because of uh, personal family matters and stuff. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about that briefly. We don't want to get too much into that. But uh, decided that it was a pretty good time to kind of get back in to the saddle and start doing this again. And uh, it was timely, too, because the film we're going to talk about today from director Emily Ting was a... Um, you know, sort of a follow-up to a film that I had talked about with you, uh, Kenneth, uh, in a short series we did, um, Hollywood and Hong Kong. With that uh, first film that she did, um, I knew that she was doing a second film, and so it's finally out, it was out on video, and I wanted to bring you back to sort of talk about that film, so we'll be talking about that today. Um, But, uh, you know, for those who might not have heard us talk before, if this is a introductory episode can you tell us a little bit about you and your podcast life well for anyone who hasn't uh, heard uh, the well heard any show from the podcast on fire network that's what i uh, co-host and co-produced we do uh, mainly shows on uh, hong kong cinema new and old but we branch out into korean cinema into japanese cinema into adult oriented hong kong and taiwanese cinema and uh, even do shows focused on specific directors i mean for heaven's sake you're, you're doing like a little director's series here in almost real time so whenever emily does a new movie you can do a new episode and by the end of her hopefully long and illustrious career, you will have a complete podcast, uh, real-time coverage. But um, that's uh, what we do over on Podcast on Fire Network, podcastonfire.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and all that good stuff. And you are, of course, gracious to come on board to help enhance. And don't you dare say anything bad about yourself because you do enhance our episodes. You do help out greatly. I mean, we even had you on for a show that was about political figures in Chinese history. And me and Tom K.W., we are stupid uh, boo-boo heads who don't know anything. So we needed to have a little bit of expertise in that episode to make the discussion flow. And uh, you graciously agreed to uh, provide that. So we're very grateful for 
what you help uh, uh, help out with over on uh, our side of the podcast street. So um, being able to go on your show, one of the things I said in the in the last episode with Kevin was over this past year, still being able to go on your show and still being able to talk and and to podcast freely. <laughs> <laughs> without the without the need to have to worry about that sort of back end stuff has been great. It's kept my podcasting muscles, so to speak, um, kind of a little bit warmed up and and helped me get back into this process a little bit more easier. So I'm very very thankful for the opportunities that you've offered me, um, not just in the past year, but always over the years um, to come on and to talk and to to sort of geek out and and really talk about stuff that I love. So I'm very appreciative of uh, that fact as well. Um, well it's, a, it, it's, it's an enhancer of our shows, as I said, and uh, it's a, it's always a good discussion flow, whether it's pre-planned or spontaneous tangents, uh, notes of substance that you might not have planned as a producer and content provider when that enters the discussion it's always uh, it's always a joy but um, since uh, we both are keen on planning these things we don't go in there and riff on things that we deem need context and things like that there's always careful planning ahead and uh, that's what you still provide on this show so no matter how much you hate it the effort is appreciated because uh, I don't really get on with shows that just turn on the mics and like, hey, so this is an important movie. Yep. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah. It's okay. I've heard shows like that. Won't name them, but I've heard shows like that. Like, Come on, this is a subject you need to provide some context for, you know, some historical context for. So, But that's just me. I'm trying to be thorough. And if people enjoy just turning on the mics and everything and talking with their friends, that's okay. It's just simply not for me. But this show is for me. So what have you been, uh, what have you been doing uh, in terms of your, um, you know, your podcasting? Has that schedule been impacted at all, or are you still pretty much rolling along with what you would consider your regular recording schedule? And what can what can we expect um, in the rest of 2020? Do you have any um, any big announcements or big plans for new series or things you have slated in the future that you're looking forward to recording on? Yeah, we we do, and I think the recording schedule. I've maintained a normal flow there as well because I guess there was a time where I I was more of a podcasting machine. Like, I can record twice or three times a week. Rock and roll. I'm Kenny B. I can do anything. And now I'm like, I'm tired. <laughs> I want to do something else. Or rather, I want to do something else creatively. Maybe uh, some uh, research on uh, unrelated podcast uh, projects. Uh, just you know, to add to my Hong Kong cinema sort of knowledge bank and also to relax, to learn how to relax properly. I'm not, I'm not good at it, but I'm, 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 I'm working on it. So I think the recording schedule is the same because I consciously stay away from recording a week here and there, like take, take two weeks off or just schedule it way ahead uh, in the future. So it's, it is all going fine there, but we have recorded some fun stuff that's been announced so therefore i can talk about it a little bit uh, we, we always have about six or seven shows done because i work that way and it happens that way and you've been on a couple of those we've done uh, two 
anime-related episodes on Japan on Fire on historical movies, the first feature-length anime ever that was in black and white uh, and a war propaganda movie to boot. Then we've done a uh, the first feature-length animated movie from Japan in color, which was based on a Chinese folktale, so hopefully we can draw in audiences through that. We have a current uh, series on one of our actor series, whether the actor is any good or not. Uh, we've done, you know, Ikin Chang and George Lam and... Uh, Alan Tam, and now we're up to Michael Wong, and and obviously he's uh, he's uh, it, it's pure beating love for Michael Wong, so it's kind of useless to do a series to determine whether he's any good or not. He's good, he's very good, but it gives us a chance to talk about Michael Wong movies uh, that people might not have heard of necessarily, and some that are key movies. Like, like regardless of what you think of him, as soon as he played Stone Wong in uh, the final option. That, that cemented his sort of reputation. People started talking about Michael Wong, started quoting his lines to him, which he, in the long run, kind of didn't like, because that means everybody calls him Guaylo all the time. And uh, it, it's it's important, in a way, to, to cover an actor like that, uh, and also to share the love, of course. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll also be doing uh, Korean cinema episodes on uh, old and new movies, for instance, talked about a quite popular what would you say? Uh, martial arts action, wuxia hybrid, comedy hybrid, I suppose, Volcano High, set in a school with uh, students of uh, immense martial arts uh, powers. And uh, the, you know, was popular back in the day, 2001. And uh, also a Taiwanese episode, for instance, on one of those 3D kung fu movies uh, we covered a movie called dynasty uh, a little while back it's uh, it was recorded a few months ago but it's it's done and it's about to be released uh, that, that movie dynasty was a taiwanese 3d movie and uh, compared to jackie's movie magnificent bodyguards which was also 3d it's uh, light years ahead really in terms of fun because jackie's movie or lawways movie magnificent bodyguards is such a dull boring time and it's super Lamey 3D, you know, kick to the camera, poke to the camera, 3D, yay. You know, it's not that fun. It's not that fun spectacle. But the Dynasty has some fun ideas in terms of the uh, wuxia style that it that it provides. So um, it's uh, it's been good fun, and those are coming up, and uh, we've had fun doing them. And you've been part of that and helped, as I said, enhance those episodes quite greatly. Well, excellent. And if you are again new to uh this series or this you know the 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 east green west green series and you've not heard any of the podcast on fire episodes before please do go check them out again they have a wide variety of topics and subjects on asian cinema so whether you're somebody who enjoys anime or sort of korean cinema or hong kong cinema um, or even adult cinema you know out of asia there is something there that will definitely uh, catch your eye and it's all good quality content all right that's going to wrap it up for our introductory talk so when we come back we'll be looking at our film for this week with emily ting's go back to china hey, lady. the card didn't work your father's frozen all of your assets how much money are we talking about here exactly? A million dollars. A million dollars? Have you thought more about my proposal? There is no way I'm going to work for you in China. 
After one year, I give you your money back. Oh my God, this is not really happening. Try to look happy. I don't want them to see you acting like this. My life is over. How am I supposed to act? You will attach the tag to the toys. Monkey could do this job. You will fit right in. Ugh. Our business is a family business. No, your business. Your family owes you absolutely nothing. You used to have the coolest products. Then you became one of those lazy Chinese guys that keeps knocking each other off. This factory will have to close down. The designers and I have been working on some new concepts. It's not really how we do things around here. We could make up our own rules. I suppose we can give it a try. Really? Despite all his flaws, he really does have a kind heart. Cool, yeah? <laughs> sure. Cool. Are you excited? Okay. And welcome back. So our film for this week, Emily Ting's Go Back to China, a 2019 film, although I've only gotten to see it this year once it was released on video. It primarily was making its way through the uh, sort of the indie film festival circuits uh, with things like South by Southwest and others. Um, around this time last year, I think in, in, in March time period of last year, actually. And uh, so this is the second film entry from director Emily Ting. We previously talked about her first film, uh, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong. And uh, with this, uh, she moves to a slightly new cast of, of actors and actresses with um, the uh, YouTube personality, celebrity, and rising star Anna Akana in her lead role, and along with a veteran actor from Hong Kong, Richard Ng, and appearances by Lin Chen, from most people will probably remember from her debut in Saving Face, and a cameo by Kelly Hu, also from um, Sammo Hung's Martial Law TV series, among other things. So the story is about L.A. socialite Sasha Lee, who's forced to leave her cushy lifestyle in L.A. and go back to China to work in her father's toy factory, or else he will cut her off financially. While there, she has to adjust to life in Shenzhen, deal with various half-siblings she's barely ever had contact with, but the real challenge may be dealing with the culture shock of her own father's personality. So before I sort of get into some of the nitty-gritty uh, and deeper details of the film, uh, Kenneth, why don't you give us your thoughts on Go Back to China? Well, it was uh, generally quite pleasing, pleasant, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to slot it into a romantic comedy because it isn't. Uh, not really a comedy because it isn't, but it's not purely dramatic and pitch black either. It's um, it's it's a family piece, I suppose. And um, uh, generally, she she moves things along quite well, balances her elements. Uh, this is not as much of a dialogue-driven piece as already Tomorrow in Hong Kong was. Be it's not as uh, small scale uh, as that one. And I, I, I was engaged in the uh, in the family sort of conflicts and drama at a, at a decent level. I only thought towards the end that she was uh, juggling a couple of 
things too many and a wrap up seemed to be a little bit uh, let's get everything in there and make sure everything solves itself boom the end so it's um she's she's certainly on her way but it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't a nice period uh, put to this uh, as such i think um, she still has a few kinks to get um, uh, to to work out but that's what working is for you know she's done two movies no one ex- is expecting perfection here but a generally a pleasing pleasant uh, time and um, easy recommendation for hong kong film fans because you, you've never seen richard um, act this much in english before and it's a delight to hear him because uh, i always knew that he um, spoke quite eloquent english and uh, to hear him uh, and to see him in such a meaty role is uh, very very nice i believe he was in briefly in already tomorrow in hong kong like he was a fortune teller or something yeah he had a small role there um and you know he's he's done a couple things over the years i want to think of the independent film Super Capitalist. I think he had a a small role in that where he was mostly acting in English. And I think he did a, uh, I can't remember, the name escapes me, but he did a Singapore comedy sitcom series that was English-based as well. But that was way back, I want to say, late 90s, maybe, early 2000s, if memory serves. And I, I, I... I think I watched the pilot episode of that once back in the day, and I didn't go further into it than that. But um, it's really interesting to see him kind of come back full force um, in a very much a lead role. I mean, I thought I knew he was in this. I thought, okay, he's gonna he's gonna be there, but you know, he's he's older now. He's not working as much. I mean, even the the films he's popped up for Hong Kong cinema proper these days, he's usually a cameo or, you know, a guest starring role at most, but he's in a good percentage of this film and he's doing a lot of heavy lifting here. So it was really surprising and really pleasing uh, to see him get so much screen time. I do think that this is a nice expansion for for director Ting because, you know, unlike uh, her first film, which I think as we talked about before, um, you, you had mentioned that it was kind of a walkie-talkie kind of a film where it's basically just characters walking and, and talking a lot. And Which is not a dismissive term. It's no, literally not, yeah. constructed as a giant walking-talking, beautiful, picturesque Hong Kong during New Year's. So, so, and, and she managed to engage through through that, through dialogue, through natural chemistry. I mean, those people were married, but you never know what the chemistry is going to be like on screen. And, you know, taking on the challenge of making an impact through, uh, you know, two persons interacting for for, eight, uh, for 80, 90 minutes. And I think uh, she did well. I know you had issues with the conclusion of that, but I didn't mind the conclusion of, uh, of uh, that one at all. So as a first piece, um, she uh, did um, rather well, and I was looking forward to see what's this going to be like then, because you can't do like, it's going to be a walking, talking Jensen. Like, <laughs> you, you can't, re- you can't like, come on, like, expand your ideas. And she, she has a well of ideas to draw upon, um, which I'm sure you'll uh, get into because um, yeah, she has experienced some of these things for real. Yeah. And I think that, the expansion here too is is nice in that she goes with um, more characters now. So the last film was really kind of I mean there were additional characters, but it was really kind of focused on the interactions between the two leads. 
And so here she's kind of expanded that out. You have uh, the main character, Sasha Lee, and she has interactions with her mom, her dad, uh, her half-siblings, um, people that work in the factory. So a larger cast overall and uh, larger, I think, more complicated relationships and dramatic moments uh, interspersed through in. And for the most part, most of that, I think, works really, really well. And you really again, get the strongest interactions between um, the lead actress, Anna Akana, and uh, co-stars Lin Chen, and also, you know, who's her half-older sister, half sister, and Richard, who plays uh, the father. And Anna Akana is herself a very interesting figure. This is um, the first thing that I've seen her in proper, and it's technically, I mean, I guess her first big sort of starring role for an independent film, but she has been a very prolific person on the sort of independent uh, YouTube uh, self-promotion scene for uh, quite a while. Uh, for people who are familiar with the actress Felicia Day, who kind of built her career out of uh, doing her own thing on YouTube with uh, the web series The Guild and then kind of making a career going off of that, I'd say that Anna Akana is very much uh, the second generation of that. Um, she's, uh, you know, she set herself up as doing uh, some comedy at first. I think she's done some musical albums as well. She's done quite a few sort of self-produced uh, videos, uh, film and short films over the years where she's produced and starred in them. And she's managed to build that into a career that's led her into uh, more professional commercial roles with, you know, studios like Disney and others um, starting, you know, going forth into, you know, small cameo roles and then into actual, you know, uh, bigger roles. So she's done work on for stuff I'm familiar with, like uh, series like Big City Greens and Amphibia from Disney. Um she has currently a starring role in a new Netflix series that's coming up later this year called Jupiter's Legacy that I'm kind of looking forward to. Um, and she's done stuff on her own. Like I said, she's has, she has a produced series that she stars in called Miss 2059, um, which is in some ways similar to The Guild. Uh, episodes are short. They're about you know five minutes in length but there are two seasons of this they're up on amazon prime if you're interested and it's kind of a quirky you know the science fiction-esque kind of thing where she's uh she plays miss earth who kind of gets kind of stuck in this uh kind of international space competition um pretty well produced considering i mean considering the dearth of content that's out there on youtube um, you know, the, it's, it's a lot better and a lot slicker in terms of production than some of the stuff you'll find out there. That's, uh, very much sort of looks like bad fan fiction in some cases. <laughs> so, um, you know, she's been working diligently kind of building herself up through things like this and has managed to push over into, um, more commercial work. And, uh, this is uh, for all intents and purposes, a really big film for her. And I think she handles it's, it very, very well. 
yes, he, he's asked to lead and we're engaged in that. And she's likable too. So, you know, we were going to be presented with her character flaws initially. And her father has character flaws, which is part of the engaging uh, family drama. But, you know, she seems ambitious and creative as a character because she's gone to um, fashion. She studied fashion. And obviously she has a creative mind and an artistic uh, mind. But she's, uh, she's, you know, her leash has not been... Uh, you know, tied to anything. It's been, uh, she's been able to navigate her world in whatever way she can. And she has uh, a boatload of, load of money to um, to do so. So she has uh, been able to set priorities socially up until the time the movie starts, of course. And uh, it the engaging part is the fact that, well, is it a rational father or a tyrant of a father that's, you know, cutting her off? And essentially, <laughs> kind of blackmailing her to go, go to China. And I, I think the, the, the trump card of of it all is that it's not as clear as that as we get through uh, interactions. Uh, Emily Ting is still good at us uh, finding out the flaws of characters through real talk, through interaction, and. Uh, so it's not a com. Uh, it's, it's not a comedy in the sense where it's setting up gags that is gonna then lead us into f- touchy feely stuff or anything. I think she keeps it quite natural as she brings uh, Sasha back to China. And, uh, I mean, she's defiant to a degree. She's she's childish to a degree, but there's no like moping, moping, moping. And ten minutes later, ooh, I can do something in the company. Ooh, I can be creative. It, it's not the contrived. Um, journey, which I appreciated because if they, if this had been a studio movie, I think they would have insisted on it being a little bit more wackier than it is. I think Emily Ting has this freedom to, yes, we have a setup that looks and smells like a contrived rom something or com something, but it isn't. She's simply going to depict it in a quite natural way but not in a in an unattainable indie way either because uh, it is very accessible and it's very it's very um, breezy and when it makes this drama it doesn't do it in a complex specialized indie way or anything it uh, simply tells its story and i think that's her um, that's her strength and to, uh, for us to appreciate the pros and cons, the strengths and flaws in characters all throughout in a quite real way. Uh, she doesn't try to put it like this hugely intelligent uh, veil over the movie and try to talk eloquently about the character flaws and the, their journeys. She kind of just puts it on front street and tells us how it is. But that's challenging kind of in itself and it's okay. It's relatable, I suppose. And uh, complex to a degree because Richard Um's character is um, he favors family and uh, but yet he's uh, created this extended family through being unfaithful so that that thread the movie keeps going quite well because um, it's not necessarily a a, a um, this positive sympathetic view of uh, the father and his past uh, the going-ons and what have you. And uh, 
to then like just have the characters talk it out and slug it out through natural straight dialogue is is to the movies it, it, it's the strength of the movie that uh, she doesn't feel the need to complicate matters uh, through you know symbolism or the non-verbal or anything and and i appreciate that uh, that uh, personally but but it is as you said more complex because she pulls in so much more characters and i think issues of uh, working relations um uh, working conditions rather in china which i think uh, might not be news to anyone that uh, chinese factory workers work for low wages but uh, and if she paints a realistic picture of it, I can't say, but it's still, um, you know, we, we, we get the picture she she attempts here. And as I said, I only think it, but by the back end, there was like five minutes left and she needed to sort of hurry to get the last few things in there to tie up the knot uh, uh, on top of the movie, if you will. But uh, it's a minor criticism rather than the ending stunk or anything. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, I mean, there's a a re- film resolution thing that happens to one of the story threads that I think is a little bit too Pollyanna-esque, um, which it involves a situation involving childcare in China. Um, and, I mean, there's a, there's a through-line resolution that came to mind immediately that I was thinking, okay, well... Th- the character can obviously do this, and then she ends up doing that um, to, to try and, you know, sort of resolve the situation. But at the same time, while that looks good narratively and plays good and makes the character, a you know, a, a super nice character, if you were uh, to sp- sort of spin it out, um, there are definitely logistical and social problems with that because it... It involves, as I said, it involves childcare in China and the fact that you have these workers who come from rural regions, different provinces, and relocate themselves to Shenzhen to work in these factories for low wages. But again, the you know, as with most labor um, and, and people who emigrate for labor, um, better wages than they, they would get where they're at. Right. So that's, you know, that's the that's the crux of it. Um, But the problem is, is that in China, when you do a relocation for that, they have a thing called hukou. So it's not like the U.S. where if I'm in Florida and I get a job or I want to go go to school in uh, New York, I can just, you know, go there. You know, as long as I can get there on my own dime and I can support myself along the way and support myself when I get there, it's fine, you know. Uh, but in China, you have a thing called hukou, which is your sort of provincial card where you're born in. And that basically says you only get access to goods and services, you know, in the province or region you're born in. So when these migrants go to Shenzhen, they're usually given special access or a special pass to allow them to do that, right? But their families don't get that, right? So, you know, for them to say, okay, well, we're going to bring our kids and then our kids are going to stay here. Well, they don't have the hukou to go to school in that area. And that's a big sort of political hotbed issue, um, especially in big cities like Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai, where a lot of people go to work. And then those people as migrants put strains on 
the system that exists, you know, whether it's the medical system or the social system of services and, and you know, the, the typical problems you have with any kind of large migrant population coming in to fulfill jobs. Um, so, you know, they don't, they don't really get into those deeper sort of darker issues. Um, it's, a, it's, as I said, a very Pollyanna-esque solution to a problem that's actually very complex that would require probably a film in and of itself to talk about mm. um, just for that thing. But it's trying to, you know, it, it's, it's not really focusing on that. This isn't a film about social issues in China. It's a film about family. Uh, and this is a film that's very much autobiographical, um, like the film's first film was. Um, the, the director's drawing on her own experience. In some ways, this is a prequel and a sequel to the first film, because the first film that dealt with the character of Ruby um, about her being in Hong Kong doing toy research and having sort of this romantic encounter. Oh, that's right. <clears throat> that was the same. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this film kind of takes place both before and after that in some ways. Oh, this is going to melt my brain now. Is it canon? <laughs> is it not? <laughs> yeah. Even though it's a different character, that she's changed up the names. Uh, I guess she could have you know, tried to get Jamie Chung back on board and, and, uh, you know, done it with the same character, but you know, it's fine the way, the way she's done it here, she's able to expand it out more again. And she the, actually, the movie is in the movie anyway. So, you know, the whole yeah. like, is it in the same universe? <laughs> no, they, they play a clip of the movie on a TV. So, yeah. And, um, one of the things she said is that it was kind of surreal because they used real locations. So, for example, the house that they shoot at in Shenzhen, that's her actual father's house. And the factory right. they shoot in is her father's actual factory. I think she's even mentioned that the manager of the factory in the film is the actual manager. So, wow. and, and a lot of the workers, uh, you know, were, 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 the, were the same. So there's a lot of drawing on, um, you know, for practical purposes, obviously, as well as, as cost saving. Um, uh, drawing on that and uh, she said it was very interesting because it's some you know in some of the scenes they'd be downstairs shooting uh, in the house with you know Richard and, and Lin Chen and others and her father would be like upstairs watching TV doing his best to stay out of the way and mm. she had mentioned that she brought him down one time to watch the filming um, in particularly in particular it was the scene where Richard's playing guitar she said she didn't want to bring him down for any of the confrontational <laughs> scenes, <laughs> which um, I don't you know, talk like that. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. But uh, you know, just <clears throat> I, I was trying to wrap my head around, you know, wow, what would he think? Does he know who Richard is? You know, he's oh, Richard is playing me. You know, uh, the comedic greatness of uh, this actor from many Wong Jing films mm -hmm. and 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 elsewhere. Um, but uh, you know, so it's it's an, an interesting follow-up to her first film again drawing from a lot of uh, the same experiences that she herself has had and you know it's not completely autobiographical so she's injecting things in there um for for narrative purposes as well but it does beg the question now where does she go from here as a writer because you know in a lot of the creative writing classes that i've had in my youth one of the things that the teachers kind of always would push forward was write what you know, you know, write what you know. Sure. Uh, so then, 
you know, she had mentioned that she was, after the first film, she was getting a lot of calls to direct more rom-coms because of the first film's success. But she felt that she needed to tell this story first before she kind of moved more into the commercial casting calls of regular Hollywood formula. So it'll be interesting to see, not, not so much as a director, because I think this proves that she, you know, she has the technique, the capability to take material and, and put out solid pieces of work uh, as a director. But as a writer, I think it'll be interesting to see where does she go from here? Does she just branch out into new territory or does she continue to tap from, you know, the, the well of her personal life that she's been using up to this point? He's doing the uh, Robert Rodriguez uh, way of uh, making your small movie, taking inventory of what you got. Because when he made El Mariachi, his very first movie, he essentially says, well, what do I have access to? Well, I've got a turtle and I've got a bus. I've got a guitar. And then, you know, he made his... uh, his action movie for the Mexican video market that then blew up in, in America. And like Kevin Smith did the same for, for clerks. I work at a convenience store. I can I have a convenience store. Emily Ting has got a toy factory and a mansion. <laughs> Let's make movies, man. Yeah. Production value after rear. So, uh, but that's what, what you got to do, I suppose. I, I wanted to ask something uh, without spoiling it. Richard character, as I said, he's not through and through super sympathetic because he's, uh, you know, he's a boss with a heart of gold. He has a sense of duty to his children and his employees, but he's also very demanding, neglectful, and he's been cheating and therefore creating this very complex family tree. So, you know, was that hard to sympathize with as such? Or it's it's human flaws, and you know, you can only move forward and try to repair what needs to be repaired in the present and then move on kind of thing. I mean, it, 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 it's not the typical sort of Richard mm, comedic, likable character that you're used to. This is, this is kind of like Richard mm, in a Wang Jing film for real. If all the fooling that he always wanted to do actually was <laughs> successful, <laughs> you know, or, or like, like he was part of the lucky stars group as well. And they, 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 they try to woo. But uh, rarely did, and um, he tried to turn himself invisible, and we know how that uh, worked in the eighties. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, the the family dynamic here, I think, was was the really the most interesting point of of the film for me. Mm. Um, seeing how the sisters related, um, and the young siblings related, and and it feels strange but it also feels natural because it's still like family and you know what are you going to do you can either accept it or not and for the most part they choose to accept it and try and work through it um one of the plot threads that i think did get dropped was he has uh, richard's character has this i guess you would describe it as a live-in girlfriend um yes with her brother <clears throat> which was yes. again very interesting and and again you're kind of one of the things you're wondering is is this real life <laughs> i mean and mm. then they don't really i mean because as you said she sort she sort of has to get in a rush to sort of wrap up the film with a bow in an almost hollywood style and we don't revisit a lot of these characters um that are introduced especially those two characters and and we don't get any kind of like 
resolution with them is like okay yeah. well what, she never what, came back what that happens with that frequent you know? off to the um off to this hair salon yes scene yeah i don't remember if, gosh she might not have had any scenes after that but 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 to bring up the point of the one child policy in china and and i i i, I like that because we got an insight into how richard you know navigates the world and tries to take care of his um his extended family on quite maybe on the surface it looks like quite uh, dodgy uh, conditions you know she, she changes his shoes at one point the character of lulu and i go oh, okay it's uh it's uh he's got a servant and maybe more as, as sasha says a few times yeah. it just says ew so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so but, uh, but, but but that was interesting because he's up to that challenge he's been a capable dramatic actor in past movies uh you know going back 20 years or longer so that flip-flop in like should we sympathize should we not sympathize and i mean he he admits his flaws because he's he he realizes he's neglectful and he promises things he he uh, and then he breaks those uh, promises and uh, I, I like those points and richard is a good reactor it's one of the aspects of the movie where you don't need to be as verbal in every scene because you can focus on Richard and have him react. And it doesn't need to be a, a sugary moment or a melodramatic moment. You That face can speak volumes. And um, she realizes that, uh, Emily Ting, I think, um, and, and wisely uses Richard to not verbalize each and every emotional inner goings of the character. But, you know, he can just sit in his chair and, barely do anything but we realize there's a lot going on there and uh that's why i have a, a veteran actor like that and um have him um, go for drama rather than the um, you know the happy wacky boss or anything you know yeah indeed and i think that it, it ends up you know being a credit to the character as somebody you think you're not going to like but ultimately end up kind of liking by the end um, d d despite his flaws, and I think that's a credit to the performance he's able to bring. I know that one of the things that director Ting mentioned when working with him was the very different style that, uh, you know, I guess that they're used to doing in Hong Kong. She said, you know, Richard wanted them to just leave the camera rolling, and he would just do his lines over and over and over. Um, while the camera was rolling until they got one that she was happy with, you know, mm -hmm. so un unlike the Hollywood one where it's like take one, take two, take three, where they stop, they reset, um, you know, because of the the nature of Hong Kong filmmaking, they just want to be quick, you know, so the the, the cut and the action and the resetting of all of that um, as kind of the ho Hollywood formula. I mean, it's good for editors, right? <laughs> Because you can simply say, mm. go, uh, you know, I want to look at take two and take five and, you know, uh, working from the notes. But in Hong Kong, they don't want to, especially, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. So they just say, you know, just, you know, let the actor keep acting, let them keep in the moment and without, without the breaks. And then uh, she said that was, you know, an interesting kind of adjustment um, to, to working uh, with him versus working with the. The actors who are more used to sort of the 
the Hollywood style. And uh, mm-hmm. they had mixed crews, um, like with the first film, she had uh, some people from Hong Kong. And we, you did mention that uh, Mike Leader's name is there in the casting credits as one of, the, I think, one of the casting directors who helped mm-hmm. with um, organize some of the, the cast and crew, I'm imagining, uh, with, with his contacts. So that was nice to see. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, it definitely shows progress, um, as a director, uh, as a writer from her first film, I think visually though, um, in terms of, we're going to talk about the cinematography, um, it's still a fine looking film, but something about the first film cinematography, you know, in terms of the cinematography, maybe just the Hong Kong setting, um, or the way the camera's used in a lot of those walk and talk scenes. Um, it, it's a bit more memorable for me, um, in terms, in terms of the visuals of it. Whereas this, I think the visuals were fine, but they're, you know, they're dealing with basically a few sets in a few places. And then yes, they are filming between the U S Hong Kong and, and Shenzhen, but this isn't a, you know, a film that's going for, super cinematography in terms of setting and location and, and things of that nature. Um, mm. Did you have any thoughts on the comparison between the first and the second? I mean, already tomorrow in Hong Kong stands out because they, it is mostly a nighttime movie and they capture that very well. I mean, I'm sure Hong Kong would look beautiful during night anyway, but you know, you, you need to shoot it well. And, um, that stood out a little bit more, but, uh, comparing them uh, might be hard because their, their mission statements are a bit more, um, uh, are a bit different. I mean, the LA sections probably look more akin to already tomorrow in Hong Kong, mainly because they have some night scenes and some party scenes and what have you, but, uh, very competent uh, looking movie of course it's not this rough and gritty indie movie it's uh, it's got a sheen on it that's uh, uh, perfectly compelling and all of that so, I was wondering one thing because I can only use my ears when listening to to the the Chinese language in this movie I obviously don't understand it uh, I I don't know was it as simple as uh, Richard speaks Cantonese throughout the movie and uh, uh, a lot of other performers speaks man- speak Mandarin? Was it is Chen Chen like known to have to have Cantonese speakers in it to a large degree, or was there a different dialect going on here um, in in those sections? Yeah, I mean, most of the workers in Shenzhen, uh, I think, like the manager, I think uh, Richard's uh, living girlfriend. Um, the, they're all speaking Mandarin. Richard himself is speaking Cantonese. And this is, I mean, this is, this is very indicative of the reality because you have, um, a lot of wealthy businessmen from Hong Kong who go up to Shenzhen to set up factories, but you have all this workforce that immigrates from other parts of China who speak Mandarin. So yeah, you go across the border into Shenzhen and you're going to hear, despite it still being in the South, despite it being, you know, literally a border and a train ride uh, to from Hong Kong, uh, it goes from Cantonese and Hong Kong to very much Mandarin. Uh, you need Mandarin mm. to get around in Shenzhen. Now, get out of Shenzhen. Again, Shenzhen is this big urban city just on the north of Hong Kong, right? So it's basically two big cities stacked, like one on the north and one on the south. In the Guangdong region, right, the Canton area region, get out of Shenzhen, 
back into Guangzhou, other cities in, 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 you know, in the area, and you're back into Cantonese, right? Mm. So for most of the people in the region outside of Shenzhen, they're going to be Cantonese speakers. They'll understand Mandarin, but they'll understand Cantonese still as, as kind of the regional right. dialect. So it's this very interesting kind of like cultural immigration thing that happens. So every time mm. I would go up to Shenzhen, I would be lost because my Mandarin's <laughs> terrible, right? You know, I, I'm, I'm fine if I can speak Cantonese, but a lot of people, because they're immigrants, you know, people, waiters, waitresses, shop attendants, you know, working in the area, um, don't speak Cantonese um, or speak it very, you know, very, very loosely. So I would have a difficult time speaking, communicating, um, navigating, um, and also because of the simplified Chinese that's used everywhere in mainland China as opposed to traditional Chinese, which I can recognize with a little bit more accuracy. Um, so it was a lot harder. I would always have to be with my wife or a friend. Um, otherwise, I'd have, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd be a lot more nervous going around by myself. I did on occasion, but um, I wasn't mm. always comfortable. So that that would be a realistic that Richard is speaking Cantonese to people who respond to him in Mandarin. You think? Yes, uh, yeah. It was not as okay, okay, because I I I was I wasn't sure that was simply the solution for the movie because Richard wasn't comfortable in Mandarin. Possibly, yeah. uh, I wouldn't know. I haven't seen him act in Mandarin. I don't think anyway. And and this is becoming a bit more commonplace in Hong Kong too, where um, you'll have locals speaking in Cantonese often to customers. In, in Mandarin, and some people can, you know, navigate through that kind of bilingualism where one is speaking one and the other speaking the other, and they can understand each other for the most part without having to speak in in the, the other's language. Uh, but in other cases, it becomes a cultural tension because, you know, a shop attendant may not speak Mandarin well enough to... Uh, wait on a customer who's you know ready to spend some cash and you know is getting impatient um, so so these kind of tensions do happen and, and do exist um, but yeah I, for for a lot of people I mean the channel switching is is somewhat natural um, so yeah I, I I guess my final thoughts on the film are that I think it's very enjoyable it's well worth your time it's Again, as Kenneth said, not a romantic comedy by any means. There's no, you know, this isn't about a love story like the first one. Um, this is a family drama, but not an overly deep drama. There's comedy elements throughout, too. Um, it's not really tapping into new territory. There are other films about sort of the, you know, um, American Chinese personality going back and having sort of culture shock. Um, but I think this is one of one that's done, you know, reasonably well. It's again, not as high profile as something like crazy rich Asians, but it kind of fits in that vein of somebody going back to their roots and dealing with family, um, on, on various levels. And I think the performances really sell this one for me. Um, so you definitely want to Take some time to, to watch it if you haven't seen it and you're somebody who appreciates uh, good performances. And, uh, of course, we have got the Hong Kong connections um, that are also a pleasure to see as well. Uh, final thoughts? Well, I'd echo those and also throw out a, a shout-out to Lin Chen as 
Carol, um, her, I don't know what it was, half-sister or whatever, uh, sister to some degree, because she carries a few emotional scenes in the last third of the film. They're very well played. They're not uh, overly melodramatic. And Emily Ting keeps focus on having, you know, the straight, real, natural delivered as family members finally talk, um, you know, say the things they've wanted for so long. And her emotional reactions to that are quite well played. And uh, yeah, she has a few crying scenes, but they're not hysterical. Uh, she keeps it uh, at a frequency that is very affecting. And I think um, her role is um, is crucial in, in that way, where uh, in, in the way the family drama resolves itself and how these characters move forward. So um, she's um, an integral part of that um, trio, I suppose. Uh, they do put Kelly Hu on the poster, but she well, she has like three or four scenes and, and they're all with... Um, uh, all with the character of Sasha, I think. Um, so, so it, it's it's nice to have, but uh, she's um, it's definitely more of a two three C cameo, and uh, this is the trio, um, uh, the the Anna, Richard, and Lynn trio that uh, matters for the movie truly. So, um, well well done uh, on her on her part. And as for availability, I mean, this is out on Blu-ray. It is out on. Uh, a couple streaming platforms like iTunes and such. So it's it's pretty widely available at the moment. Um, and if this is something that interests you, again, I would say that you should also check out Emily Ting's first work, uh, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong, which is also available across a wide variety of channels. I know that that, pump, that one popped up on Netflix at the time that this releases. Uh, it still might be there, I'm not sure, um, because Netflix is constantly changing its catalog, adding and taking things away. Thank you, Netflix. Um, but also for a deeper kind of darker look into China factory life, uh, if, if you're kind of interested in the socio-political side of things that we touched on, that this film touches on but doesn't get too deep into, um, if that's something that, you know, is of interest to you, you can look to the 2008 documentary called Mardi Gras Made in China, which um, is kind of like a little bit of a, uh, what do I, you know, it, it's it's a kind of a not really an ambush film per se, but you know, there's some hidden can there's some hidden camera usage at times um, amongst these interviews that happen with this factory that makes beads and Mardi Gras celebrities. Um, so it's based, you know. It, it juxtaposes the kind of partying lifestyle that goes on in Mardi Gras with the factory worker's life in, that's very far removed from that uh, in China. And you get to see people along the way, the distributor in the U.S., um, the owner of the factory in Shenzhen, who is very much like the Richard Moon character here. He's a kind of a Hong Kong um, businessman who's running the factory. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's not pulling any punches. It's kind of showing the good, the bad, and the ugly of that kind of, you know, thing, that kind of process. So if that interests you, you can check out that film. I believe it's still streaming on Prime, but you have to sign up for one of their special channels, um, which you can do for free for like a week. And there's um, wide availability in terms of a DVD release as well. Um, 
So you can check that out. Did they, the uh, by the way, produce any um, special features for the um, for the uh, for this movie? I know she did a commentary for her first movie. Or you don't have the Blu-ray; you only have the streaming. Uh, I I do have the Blu-ray, but I there was no special features that I saw, and I don't know if there's a commentary track because I'll have to right go back and, and dig into that. Um, but um, yeah, she does have a couple, you know, interviews up on YouTube and things when they were doing promotion for the film uh, back in in 2019 um, mm-hmm. that you can go and, and listen to. And as far as I know, I don't know of anything she's working on currently, but hopefully she'll, you know, because it's been, what, five years, four years uh, since her first film, so hopefully she'll, <laughs> it won't be such a large gap between this film and her next film. Um, but if she does come out with something in the near future, we will uh, hopefully get together and talk about that one as well. Yeah, they certainly don't keep them off um, the big streaming platforms uh, compared to the HBO Asia stuff. So eventually uh, we're going to be able to get it. I mean, uh, I may be in Sweden, but getting on Amazon Prime is, is, is not a problem, really. I mean, it simply just takes... The click of a VPN, you know, click on a VPN thing, and then you're off and running. I mean, for, for Prime, I also buy a, a fair amount of things, and that's no problem. Being in Sweden, um, as such, you know, you, you can put the money into the system, even if um, uh, even if you don't have a, an American credit card or whatever. So, they, even if it's not your region, you're going to be able to um, to to get the most movies in other regions. I mean, it's, it's been to my advantage because I've added to my Prime library as purchases uh, a couple of things from the last 10, 15 years out of Hong Kong and China that uh, uh, that's not in my regions and such and uh, th- that I'm happy to have digitally only. I'm not uh, stickly for, oh, it's got to be on disc uh, because it, it looks as good to me in digital HD as it does on uh, Blu-ray disc HD. So I'm good with that. So hopefully the trend will continue with Emily Ting's movies turning up on um, turning up on these um, common services. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but, uh, you know, we use uh, an internet movie database and uh, YouTube and uh, some other stuff. And we get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail. And find us on Facebook over at East S West S. As always, uh, please do follow along with Kenneth and everything that he does at his massive media empire that is known as uh, Podcast on Fire. So, sir, tell us more about where they can find you. It's literally contained within a corner. 
that one man can barely fit in. That's a media empire for you. <laughs> all right. Uh, podcast on Fire Network, podcastonfire.com. Uh, and we're all on uh, the various uh, podcatchers uh, of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, and uh, wherever you can find us, thanks to these uh, magical RSS feeds. Uh, we end up in more places than we than we know. Uh, so you can search us out and check out, in particular, the shows that Paul Fox uh, helps out on because they are they are way better than um, what we uh, could have done since uh, since Paul so check that out and uh, I'm on social media at so good reviews on Twitter and I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese uh, wacky children's movies I suppose on so good reviews.com so be, uh, I'll be thankful if you have a little uh, little look of uh, at what I do when I'm not speaking here uh, with you all right that's all very good so please do check them out um and you know i don't know when this particular episode was going to drop but uh there's a couple of things that uh mr burrison and i have been involved with but unfortunately we can't really talk about them yet uh because uh, things are kind soonish, of in soonish. slow mode right now because of the the world at yeah. large but uh maybe by the next time we are together we'll be it on this show or on a podcast on fire episode uh, that'll be something that we can uh, speak a little bit more in depth about, um, but uh, good stuff in the pipe coming in the future. Um, so yeah, lots to look forward to. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying, keep the faith. You know, stay social but stay distant, and we will see you next time. And ditto. And thank you for inviting me, Paul. And you're back. Yay! I'm excited. I'm gonna download this when it's released. I'm that uh, narcissistic. <laughs> Because I want to support your download numbers. Uh. 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 Uh.